over 15 years experience as a Marine infantryman. I have over 20 years experience as a law enforcement officer. Combined, we have about 30 years of experience as firearms instructors and 32 years of experience carrying concealed weapons. The purpose of this show is to discuss firearms, equipment, and training as it relates to self-defense from a military, law enforcement, and civilian perspective. Daniel Shaw here with John McGregor. Hey, John. Hey, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing good. It was great to hang out with you a few days ago while we were out there at the range in Tiverton, Rhode Island, uh, shooting some rifles and teaching some guys some rifles. Yeah, definitely uh, definitely interesting. Definitely good to finally uh, meet you in person. Yep. Had a great time, man. Thanks for coming out there. And all you guys that were out there as well, glad you were there. All you others that didn't make it, we're already looking at something else we're going to do together. Um, a little bit more. Rifle. So look for that sometime in the far future. Maybe not too far. You got some other stuff coming up too, don't you? Uh, yeah, I do. I got uh, the Warrior Summit coming up on Labor Day weekend. That's in Ohio. Garrettsville, Ohio. That's going to be pretty awesome. I'm teaching one day carbine, doing it twice. So I got two days of that. I'll put the links to that in the show notes if you guys are interested. The cool thing about the Warrior Summit is not just my carbine class, but it's also uh, you want to learn some unarmed combatives, some knife fighting, not just like take away, run away from knife stuff, but how to fight with it. And also uh, some combat-focused shooting handgun taught by Paul Carlson. And then uh, there's also going to be some long-range, thousand-yard, accurate rifle shooting. All right right there. You want to take a vacation? Come out to the Warrior Summit. Take everything, and it's going to be awesome. We'll be hanging out. Paul Carlson does an awesome job hosting this thing. It's got like every night it's filled with something. There's like medical. There's uh, some other kind of mindset stuff. There's something like every night to keep everybody busy that just kind of comes along with it that's not anything extra. You just you don't pay anything more. You just go there and get it. It's going to be a really good time. Yeah, sounds like uh, pretty intensive. You can get as little or as much as you want. Sounds really yep. interesting. Pay for the classes you want and take them. You can get everything from zero to a thousand. The other thing I got going on really soon on the 10th and 11th with uh, everybody's favorite podcast, The Gun Dudes, going up to Salt Lake City to hang out with those guys because Tom, Tactical Tommy of The Gun Dudes, is basically bringing me out there and we're going to do two days of handgun. We're doing uh, Paratus Academy's Handgun Vitals 1 and 2 right there near uh, Salt Lake City. It's uh, Fairfield, Utah at Global One Range. So I hope you guys come out there and join us with that. It's going to be a, a really good time. We're getting quite a few sign-ups, so you better get in that thing pretty quick because you know how the gun dudes are. They they tend to fill up courses pretty fast. Especially in their home territory, I would imagine. Yeah, they kind of they kind of dominate Utah, you know? You know, you uh, just reminded me, talk about Tommy a little bit, but not only did I get to meet you, but uh, I got to meet Paul Carlson from Safety Solutions, but also... Besides, you know, the greatness of meeting you two guys, I got to see some target stands in action. Stands, target stands. Yes, stand stands. So, and I, they didn't fall down. They worked good. No, I did, haven't met Stan yet, but I have held his work in my hands. So that was good, too. Yeah, so go check out Stan Stands. At, it's at the Gun Dude Sweatshop. Put a link to that, too, in the show notes. And there'll also be a link for uh, the class in Utah for you to go sign up for that one. So hope to see you out there. And... I don't know if stand stands are going to make an appearance, but I hope they do. Yeah, well, they definitely should. They should. And we always like to send people toward the gun dudes and help those guys out because those are awesome, awesome people. And uh, isn't you no? Know, it's para, para training is the name of Tommy's academy, correct? It is, yep. Yeah. Well, if it's an academy, he should probably have like 30 sets of those stands all ready for you to go. He should. Yep. Get on it. All right. So what do you? what is this podcast about, John? I haven't even heard it yet. Uh, it is basically me talking with, uh, Scott Ballard had him on the show before, but one of the things that, uh, one of the things I know about Scott is he is a 1911 aficionado. He likes his 1911s and, uh, it's kind of a selfish kind of interview because really I just wanted to learn more about 1911s myself. So I got, uh, got to nail Scott down and, uh, had a nice chat with him. And got to kind of ask all my questions, asked uh, the ones on the Facebook page that, that I hadn't already planned on asking them. So basically, it's uh, it's what you're going to hear next is uh, it's going to be basically part one of the interview where we're just going to talk about 1911s for about an hour. 
I have to say, I'm pretty excited about it because there was a lot of good questions on the Facebook page for you to ask Scott about. Yeah, to having the interview with him, it uh, you know definitely changed my opinion as to if uh, if the 1911, if it's something that I would consider as a carry gun. And I'm not going to tell you if it improved that opinion or it uh, reduced that opinion, but uh, it definitely, you know, I learned a lot enough to, to change my, my way of thinking about them. All right. I wonder if they're going to change mine too. Yeah, we'll see. Let's see. But before we do that, we should probably thank our sponsors for making the uh, interview possible. Yeah, I was going to do that, but I was going to do it a different way. And now you made it sound like I forgot. Oh, okay. Well, we can edit that part right out then. No, it's more fun if this stays in. All right. Uh, Gunfighter Cast is always brought to you by Aries Gear, best belts in the industry, also G-Code holsters, and Dark Angel Medical. So uh, sit back and start taking apart your 1911 and uh, listen to Scott and John talk about it. Scott, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Um, I know you've, uh, well, you were on a previous episode, but why don't you uh, give us a little uh, reminder on your background, and I don't know that we specifically got too deep into your uh, affection with 1911s. No. But, uh, what, what, what can you share with us? Well, again, Scott Ballard, I'm an instructor at SIG, at Six Hour Academy. I've uh, been teaching for a long time, and a lot of that has also included gunsmithing, armors courses, things like that. I wouldn't say that I'm a gunsmith because I'm not a really good machinist. Uh, I don't have a mill sitting down in the basement, and I don't make my own parts. But I've uh, been working on 1911s, uh, learned to shoot them. Basically, that was the first gun I ever shot was my dad's 1911. So I've been shooting 1911s now for about 42 years, and I've built a couple hundred of them over mm-hmm. the years uh, for myself, for friends, um, just because I wanted to see if I could do it kind of thing. I uh, had a great time doing it, and... Uh, I've learned quite a bit. I would say that I'm a student of the 1911 more mm-hmm. than I am anything. Yep. Um, because every time I touch one, I learn something new. Because hmm. it's forever changing and it's forever getting different. But th- there is no other. Um, it, it is the birth of all the modern firearms. Everything has been evolutionary from that point forward, from Browning's designs. And it's it's a piece of history that tells us where we're going to be going in the future, I believe. All the guns that we've been working with over the years have all developed somehow off of the 1911-style designs. Mm-hmm. So, Well, I wanted to, uh, on a, just on a personal note, I wanted to talk to you about 1911s because, uh, you know, I don't... You know, I don't consider myself anywhere near kind of knowing what they are. I mean, I've, you know, we see them in classes. Basically, kind of everything I know is the outside of the gun. I've never delved into the inside like, uh, you know, I do you know, classic line armor stuff on the SIG. So I know what everything is happening inside. 1911's no idea. So um, definitely some questions I wanted to ask about some things I've heard or, you know, some different terms and stuff. Um, so if any, you know, any rabbit hole you want to run down, just, uh, okay. you know, go ahead and do it. Well, there's a couple of, you know, basic things to understand. When it comes to the 1911, it is an incredibly simple gun. It's, it's amazingly simple inside. It's, I learned how to take the first one apart based on my dad let me get a hold of one and I was dumb enough to take it apart. And it took me two days before I admitted to him that I took it apart. And then another five days to figure out how to put it back together. And I finally did get it back together. And, you know, I was only eight when I did that. I mean, it was just a matter of taking it apart and putting it together. I learned it, but. It's also one of the most complex simple guns because every part has to be fit properly. Mm-hmm. Every part's got to work properly. The geometry has got to be right on everything in order for this to work the way it's supposed to work. And then the other thing to remember about 1911s is more about the users. They're mm-hmm. extremely passionate people. Mm-hmm. They're just downright, they will go right down to the mat arguing their points and it's not that everybody's wrong or everybody's right. It's that everybody's going to have different experiences with them. Mm-hmm. And you have to allow sometimes for those passions. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, we try to apply, you know, SIG mentality or Glock mentality that if one is like this, then they all must be like this. And it's really not the case with 1911s, especially with high end 1911s, guns that are hand fit, mm-hmm. guns that are put together with different types of parts, even. 
Um, and you, you'll see that in different lines of guns, uh, even from the Dan Wesson days. Now, say, for example, Dan Wesson now is building some of the finest, what they call production guns I've ever seen, mm-hmm. using some of the finest parts available on the market and for great prices. Um, you, you know, five, seven years ago, you would never have seen that kind of stuff out of Dan Wesson. All you would have seen is, you know, basic, uh, inexpensive, cheap parts. And so when we look at that, we have to make sure we're comparing apples to apples because one person will go, Dan Wesson, that's junk. Another person is going to go, my Dan Wesson is perfect. And we're not necessarily looking at the same two Dan Wesson guns. And you see that with Springfield Armory. You see that with a lot of different manufacturers out there. Colt, before they bought all their new machinery, was was not the greatest of quality, but now some they're putting out some of the best guns I've seen in a long time. So just in case, you know, somebody you know, totally new to guns, you know, maybe all they've ever done is, you know, they went out and bought themselves a Glock 19. That's all they've ever done, but they've heard about 1911s. What is a 1911? What makes a 1911 a 1911? Well, the 1911 is, it's the, you know, it's the single stack gun. It's what everybody calls a 45. And you that'll tend to irk real 1911 people because 45 is a caliber, not a model. The model is the 1911. It's actually the 1911A1, but we just say 1911 pattern guns. And it's usually made up of some very specific key features. First and foremost is the firing mechanism, that entire system. Not only is it single action, but it has a grip safety. And that's that grip that as you come up with it, the web of your hand depresses against it. Some people call it the beaver tail. And what that does is that depresses a safety that lifts an arm up that will allow the trigger to move to the rear because the trigger is an inline trigger, a 1911 trait. Most of the modern triggers that we have now are levers Mm -hmm. and they actually sweep in an arc where the 1911 is a straight trigger and it's a straight pullback trigger. And you can actually see the bow of the trigger as it moves inside of the frame when the magazine's not in the gun. Combine that with the thumb safety and then just the general overall appearance based on being the old slab sides gun, that's your true 1911. Now, the original 1911 is a five inch, bushing barreled, all steel, 45 caliber gun, 45 ACP. Remember the cartridge was designed for the gun as much as the gun was designed for the cartridge. They came out together. So this was an answer to a question that the army had asked saying, we have problems with these little Filipino guys not dying when we shoot them with the 38. Help, help, help. They were used to 45 caliber cartridges and the 45 Colts, you know, the single action armies. And the 45 ACP was a natural transition over to that. Smokeless powder made semi-automatic pistols viable. Before that, you would never have been able to fire a semi-automatic pistol. The smoke would have been incredible. Imagine firing off seven rounds of, yeah. you know, in rapid succession, you know, they just would have been possible to see. But when they went to smokeless powder and we had the cartridge type, uh, the type of cartridge we have now, it, it really made that a viable option. And the, the 1911 is the epitome of the original design. It is obviously, it's a linked barrel that tilts and unlocks, allows for extraction. All of these things are these are features, the original features that came with with Browning's design, and that's really kind of what makes that the 1911 is, is not only the shape, but more the trigger firing mechanism, the safeties, and the um, you know the, just basically the overall appearance of the gun. So the caliber is mostly important. Okay. Um, so you had mentioned uh, you'd mentioned the original was a five inch version. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we start talking, and I think these are size terms, I don't know if they're referring to the uh, the barrel or the frame, government model versus commander versus officer model. What sure. is that? Well, the original would be the government model. That would be the five-inch gun. And that was the original design, and it's what worked the best, and it was what the gun was designed to work with the forty-five ACP cartridge. Later on, they came up with the Commander, which is a four and a quarter inch barrel, but it was a four and a quarter inch bushing barrel, mm-hmm. originally on a steel frame, but then they came up with the Commander, the lightweight Commander, which had an alloy frame, made it easier to carry. But the idea was is that the Commander made it just three quarters of an inch shorter. 
and the, and the overall length. It had nothing to do with the frame itself because it was essentially the same size frame. It used the same magazines, the same grip panels, same size mainspring housing, things like that. So you ended up with a gun that was about three quarters of an inch shorter. And there's a lot of people out there, and I'm one of them, who love the commander size guns. Mm -hmm. They think they're great. Somehow that three quarters of an inch matters. It really matters to them. And then you get into the officer's gun. The officers is when they went down to the sub four inch gun, that three and a half, any, anywhere in that range. And it was more for, I think that they were trying to do was duplicate kind of the belly gun thing. And it really, the gun and the cartridge never really worked well together. And now there's going to be plenty of people out there who are going to go, mine works just fine. I don't know what, you know, Scott doesn't know what he's talking about. And that's great. Anybody can get one gun to run. But we're talking about looking at them as a whole. And we talk about looking at them as a group. And the sub-four-inch guns, as a group, have proven to be less reliable, less trustworthy. And I'm talking about true use. I'm not talking about I take mine out to the range and I've put 50 rounds through it. You know, and I was, my question is always the same. Is really a whole 50 rounds? You know, we really got to look at these. How would we use them? You know, is it going to work under stress? Can it make it through a class? And I can tell you, I've never had a sub four inch gun make it through any of my classes without puking. So when you look at those different sizes, the, tr the original design was what worked best. And then the commander tends to work really well too. But they were all based off of the original Browning design, that being a bushing barreled gun. Modern techniques have allowed for a gun kind of in between. It's the four inch gun. And that's that, what you see the pro line at Kimber or a lot of Bill Wilson's guns now, the, his compact or his carry size, I should say. They're four inch guns and they're, they've gotten rid of the bushing and they've gone to a bull barrel, which is instead of having a bushing, which fits to the barrel and also fits to the slide, they now have a bull barrel that is coned out towards the muzzle, and it's something that is fit to the slide directly. It's an ease and speed in manufacturing. Some say it's a better design. You know, there's arguments either direction. I'm a purist. I say the further you get away from the original Browning design, the more likely you are to have trouble. Is So manufacturing, it might be easier. Are there any other advantages or disadvantages as far as, like, accuracy or reliability going to that... <laughs> That bushingless or bull barrel system. Sure, the 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 bull barrel system is is more accurate. Uh, anytime you're getting rid of the extra play, because remember where the barrel meets the slide, whether there's a bushing in the middle or not, that's a locking point. Mm -hmm. And the stronger and more tight your locking points are, the more accurate your pistol's going to be. But that also plays into the rear locking lugs on the barrel, as well as the barrel link, which is held into the frame by the takedown or the slide catch lever. So there's a lot of things to consider there, but if you can eliminate not only the having to fit bushing to barrel and bushing to slide, that particular thing, you've taken out a weak point or a potential slot point, which is going to make the gun more accurate. However, anytime you get more accurate, the less likely you are to have reliability. And that's not necessarily the, the, the end-all be-all statement, but it's a rule of thumb. And it's why the original 1911s work so well. And you'll hear us talk about, you know, my, my grandfather's, you know, 1911 from when I was in the Marine Corps or when he was in the Marines in 1944. It works just fine. It has worked for all these years and it's, it's perfect and everything else. But if you grab that gun, I bet you it rattles. And it's because it's not made so tight. And once we started tightening the guns up, all of these target shooters and all that type of thing, that's when we started to stray away from Browning's original intent. Now, he intended it to work loose. He intended it to be a rattle gun. He intended it to have that play in order to make sure that it was reliable, that it was feeding ball ammunition. Because that was all he cared about at the time, was making sure it fed ball ammunition. So what would we, that type of original Browning 1911, the, the loose or slop, whatever you, however you want to call it, mm -hmm. 25 yards, what, what kind of groups would we expect that to? Uh, I think that they, they were reasonable with the expectation of four to six inches. Four to six you inches. Know, any, yeah, minute of man type of shooting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was it was never really intended to be. Remember, the original 1911 was intended for cavalry. You know, what do they do? 
The cavalry charge is what replaced the ground charge. They come in, they grab out their pistols, they ride through, and they might fire one or two or three shots. Mm-hmm. And then they get to the other side, they turn around and ride back through the melee, and they fire a few more shots. They get up to a safe location, they reload, and then they go ride through again. You know, and that's kind of what it was designed to do. So it wasn't intended to be this long-range, 25-yard, nail, nail half-inch groups. Um, you know, which is where we're at now. I mean, most, most modern fire 1911s can shoot better than the actual shooters. Mm-hmm. So we've really yeah. tightened them up. Yeah, we've tightened them history. up. Yeah. We've, well, we've tightened them up and we've tweaked them. A lot of manufacturers are straying away from the original mil-spec Browning design. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's some things that have changed. Different manufacturers have changed things. Um, the custom guys have really changed it. Get your hands on a less bear. He builds an excellent gun, high, high quality guns, super accurate guns. But it takes 10 men and a small boy to operate the slide until it gets broken in. <laughs> you know, it, it takes a lot of work to get this gun. You really have to almost beat the gun into submission. To get to that point where it's going to be reliable enough to carry? Well, it, yeah, if you would even carry it at all. I'm not sure that that would be the gun. I, I think that I would rather have it rattle. All of the 1911s that I have built to carry have all been loose. Not ridiculous loose, but they've, they've had a bit of a of play in them. And it was done intentionally. Yeah, you don't need uh, half-inch groups at 25 yards. No, no, I, I need three-inch groups at 25 yards. I'm comfortable with that because mm-hmm. I'm I have a hard time being that good of a shooter, anyways. And I'm not sure that you know the the you know average ammo. You know, I I think anything three inches or under is pretty darn good for that kind of stuff, even off of a bench. Yeah. So it's it's pretty impressive what they can what they've done. So you had mentioned uh, backtracking a little bit because I know people have asked the question. Uh, the, the smaller slide 1911s haven't made it through class and, you know, others have come, come out and kind of said the same thing that, um, that they question the, the reliability of three inches. And like you said, a lot of people have had three inch 1911s that they swear by that, that run, uh, you know, fine for, for their circumstances. What do you think is a good round count as far as, uh, Part of here, part of me thinks this way is, you know, obviously I want the most reliable handgun that I can have if I'm caring for self-defense. But if if uh, if my 1911 fails after like 400 rounds, well, I'm never going to be, you know, going around town with 400 rounds anyway. I'm never going to get to that failure point. So. Mm-hmm. Some people will, you know, will argue logic is, you know, if it will, if I'm going to carry three magazines and the thing's going to run for at least 25 rounds, Mm -hmm. then, you know, then why not carry it? What is your criteria for reliability? What are you looking for? Well, well, the the 25 round comment, they're absolutely right. It's only really got to work for 25 rounds because that's all I carry. I'm okay with that. I get that. Um, Again, I'm, what I'm looking at is, is, not just the gun and how it's working at that moment. I'm working at what, looking at whether or not that gun's going to be working down the road and what's it going to take to keep it going. So when I look at the 1911s, you know, am I always going to have that kind of, that same kind of ammo in it? Mm. You know, and are, am I going to have to, you know, keep retesting and retuning every time I change carry ammo? Because lately getting the same carry ammo has been pretty difficult for a lot of people. But beyond that, When I look at criteria, what I look for is a thousand rounds of true uninterrupted firing. And when I, when I say that, I don't mean just a thousand rounds go and and abuse the gun. You can clean it, clean it all you want, clean it after every hundred rounds if you want, but it should still be able to run for a thousand rounds. You know, the army's original design, they did 6,000 rounds. Without, you know, without a problem. I mean, so we know that they're capable of. I know it's capable because the 1911s I carry, they've all had that same test. You know, and yes, it's expensive, but, you know, it's the test. It's, it tells me whether or not it's working right. And during that time frame, while I'm watching this gun run, I'm going to watch things like the ejection patterns. And I'm going to look for extractor wear, and I'm going to look for ejector wear. Is the, you know, is the extractor tuned properly? I'm going to look for things... Like parts breakage, I'm going to look for damage to things. I'm going to look for signs of battering, and these are all the things that come into play to tell me whether or not this gun's really tuned properly. So, having that gun 
tuned and working properly, you know, for that thousand rounds lets me know that I've got a, at least a couple thousand more rounds of confidence in it, you know, before I have to start looking at my extractor. Um, so to, to me, you know, you can go, you can buy it, you put 50 rounds through it and you claim it's really, you know, you deem it reliable. It, that's okay. I get that. But the gun tells us so much more about how it's going to be long term when we actually run it for an extended period of time. And one of the biggest things is, is that it's hard to get away from the artificiality on the range. Most places nowadays won't let you shoot rapid fire, but we equate trigger press with survival when it comes time to have to save our lives. You know, we're pointing that gun at somebody, we're pressing that trigger hard and fast. And if you can't spend a lot of time with your 1911, drawing it from the holster, getting that safety off, and firing two to three rounds in a rapid succession, you're probably not finding out what it can, whether or not it's going to really work when you need it to. And that, that's kind of, I think that that's the miss there. So it's not only important to run the gun, but it's important to run the gun in the context in which you plan to use it. If it's just going to be a plinker, who cares? Have a good time. Um, and the, if, if you get a malfunction there, who cares? But if it's going to be for your life or death type of gun, if it's what you're going to use to save your family, then I think you really need to, you know, give some consideration to making sure it works, making sure it works with the ammo that you intend to carry in it, and make sure that it works with the magazines that you're going to use, and you're creating a family right there. You know, make sure that you mark those gun, those mags that they go to that gun. The easiest way is to use the last couple digits of the serial number and then dash one, two, three, four, and test them and rotate them and make sure that they're always working whenever you're firing. Don't have mags in a box that you use for practice and then mags in that, you know, that is only for carry. Like the worst thing I've ever seen is, oh, I got some brand new Wilson Combat 47Ds, awesome mags. And the first thing they do is they put all the carry ammo in them and they load them in their gun. They never bother to take the time to make sure that they actually work. And that's one of those things that you got to make sure it does. And I fired eight rounds through it. It must work. I, I think that's being a little naive when it comes to, to 1911 ownership. Yeah. Well, I got some, uh, some basic stuff. I mean, you would kind of almost gone into like the tuning stuff. I yeah. do want to hit that after, but, uh, just some, you know, more almost like the catchphrases you hear just <laughs> to kind of explain what those are. Uh, the 1911 versus the 1911A1. Sure. What What's the story there? The, the 1911 was the original design. You know, that was Browning's original, what he had, what, one, two, three, four. It looks like five patents there on the side of that. Yeah. Um, we're reading off of a picture here. But um, the 1911 was what the Army adopted, March 29th, 1911. It was actually the culmination of years from 1905 on to 1911 of a really great testing process that made a lot of sense. Um, and that's what the, you know, the army said, we want a gun. This is what we want it to do. If you want to participate, build a gun, we'll destroy it. And then we'll tell you what's wrong. And then you can make a better gun. And then you can bring it to us if you make it through to the second round. And that's what happened with all of that. And there was a lot of guns, but that particular gun is the one that passed the trials and made it through. And that was the 1911. Now, the original 1911 had a short trigger. It didn't have the scallops in front on the, on the sides of the frame as your trigger finger led into the trigger. It had a flat back strap. And there's a few other things that were different about it. And after a while, during some changes and some use, they, you know, as they do with all things, you know, you see it now with, you know, guns being developed. The M16's gone through how many iterations? And now you're seeing it here in the 1911 where the, the Army came back with some feedback, especially after World War II. And 1924 to 1926 period, they adapted a lot of those changes into the, like the arched back strap, a longer trigger that was still curved in the face, recesses on the side of the frame, you know, things like that that made the gun easier to use. Uh, made it, you know, just based on the feedback of what their findings were, that these were improvements to the gun. And that's when you got the A1, was when they made it over. Now, just about all modern firearms are based off of the A1, but some of them are creeping back in with some original designs. Like, a lot of times now, 
guns are just coming with flat back mainspring housings. You know, instead of, and there's, you know, the triggers, some of them come with short triggers, some come with long triggers. Triggers are a completely different topic. But from, you know, A1, you know, from the original to the A1, it was that time frame up to about 1926 where the final adaptation or adoption, I should say, of the, the A1 came into play. So mostly ergonomic type features. I, I would say is mostly ergonomic yeah. type features. So now did, uh, one, you know, another term that, that I don't understand, but I hear it often enough. Series 70 versus Series 80. was Is that part of that era? or that it's Series 70 and Series 80 is really more of a... Um, it's almost like a misassignment of terms. And day-to-day use, when we say Series 70, we mean a gun that does not have a firing pin block. Mm-hmm. And what that is is some type of an actuated lever whether it be from the grip safety or from the trigger bow itself, that pushes on levers that cause a button to be pushed on the inside of the slide that allows the firing pin to move forward. And the idea behind this was it was supposed to have stopped negligent discharges. That, you know, the gun couldn't be dropped and fired and things like that. And it was just a, it was an added piece. Now, what most people don't understand is is that that was originally used by Colt in 1938 to 1941, and it was a design called the Swartz design. And the Swartz design was actuated off of the grip safety, the beaver tail, the grip Mm -hmm. safety. And that is what actually started that whole mess, but Colt got rid of it in 1941. And there's a lot of people who think that that firing pin block is a it's a bit of a of a hindrance when it comes to accuracy when we say series 80 nowadays we're talking about guns that traditionally have some type of a firing pin block in them but originally it was the colt series 80 guns that had them but the truth of that matter is is that not all colt series 80 guns have it there were some early models that didn't so it wasn't indicative of being Series 80, truly, it was just more, that's what the slang caught on. Mm -hmm. That's why I say it's a misassignment of terms, because it was long before the Series 70 that these things have been around, the Swartz block, for example. But nowadays, what you have is in Kimber, who uses a Swartz-style block. And that would be be in the Series series 2 Kimbers. Okay. All right, so it is not Series 70 or Series 80. It, in slang terms, we would say that the firing pin block is a Series 80 mm-hmm. on any of them. So when if you're in the gun shop and somebody says, here, here's a Springfield, it's a Series 70, what they're really saying is it doesn't have a firing pin block. Mm-hmm. And the way they got around that was is that manufacturers have gone back to no more firing pin blocks in some guns, and they've gone to lightweight firing pins and extra power firing pin springs. And that allows it so that that spring or that firing pin can't bounce forward with enough force to hit the primer. We're not sure that was ever really a problem. Um, as much as it was sometimes we get answers to questions we don't ask. Yep. And so, you know, the, the base deal with it is a series 70 doesn't have a firing pin block. Series 80 does, but there's the different types that are out there. And remember, it was way back in the late thirties when Colt started using it for a few years. So it, it's, you know, you have to, if you want to understand the true history, that's where it goes. Um, whether or not they cause a problem or not, I, I'm not sure. I do know that when the guns that I rework, that have those, I spend some time on those parts because usually those firing pin blocks, especially the new systems that are actuated by the trigger bow, this, you know, what the, the latest systems, not the Swartz block, but the ones that when the trigger bow pushes back, the part of the trigger bow actually pushes against the safety lever. Those parts aren't made with the greatest of care. Those safety levers, they're really, especially modern times, they're small pieces of punched steel. And then they're fit very badly, and they are given no consideration to whether there's a sharp edge on them or not. And lubrication is more of an afterthought. So if you take them out and give them some care, work them a little bit, you can you can smooth that out. So I'm not convinced that it really affects accuracy because I have yet to meet... Actually, I shouldn't say that. I've met very few shooters who shoot better than their guns. Yeah. 
Okay. So. Well, that's, uh, that, well, I would say that clears up something, but no, I think I'm more confused in some respects. Than About I, but, which but I understand. Part? No, I understand that uh, Series 70 and Series 80 really mean two different things, but there's a, a slang use that everybody pretty much says Series 70, uh, no firing pin safety. No firing pin block. Firing pin block in a Series 70. Series 80s, they go away from that again. Yeah, they go back to having a firing pin block. Okay. And, and, you know what, though? Here's the thing. Every SIG pistol has a firing pin block. Mm-hmm. Every Glock pistol has a firing pin block. Yep. All right? Every M&P that I have torn apart has got a firing pin block in it. You know, I, we can keep going down the list. You know, they all, everybody uses them now. Yeah. It's a pretty standard, standard thing. It wasn't part of the original design, so there you go. guys like me who are purists go, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be in the gun. Yep. That's all, really. Yeah. You know, that's not to say that it has any ill effects. All right. Um, some 1911s, maybe all 1911s, have a half-cock position. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do with the half-cock position on my 1911? Well, the half-cock was originally part of that original, you know, way back in the day design. Um, you know, back when they would they'd load the chamber and then put it on half-cock because then they didn't have to worry about an accidental discharge. And they would have to cock the pistol in order to use it. Kind of goes back to that old cavalry days. Mm-hmm. You didn't want it resting all the way forward. Because then the hammer was resting on the firing pin. So imagine a gun without a firing pin block mm-hmm. and the hammer's resting on the firing pin, kind of like what you used to see with old revolvers. Yep. So if they wanted to carry one in the chamber, they had to have it on the half cock position. Nowadays, and what we've found is, is that, you know, there's, there's three ways to carry a 1911, really. One is cocked and locked the way it was intended. Condition one. Condition three which is a full magazine inserted, but an empty chamber, which require cocking of the gun Mm -hmm. upon drawing. And then the third one, a lot of us have referred to it as condition stupid. And I apologize if I've offended somebody, you know, send John the the emails, but (laughs) um, it, it really is the kind of the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And what that requires is condition two is loaded magazine, loaded chamber with the hammer down. And it goes down to the half-cock position, hopefully. Here's the problem with that. How do you get the hammer down on a loaded chamber? Well, you obviously pull the trigger. Yeah, you, you press that trigger in. And you kind of ride that hammer forward. Mm-hmm. Now, now, that violates a couple of things. Number one, that whole safety thing that we've been so fond of here. Um, but number two, riding the hammer forward in 1911 is a great way to mess up your sear. Mm-hmm. But and we'll probably get into that a little bit later. Yeah, that but that sounds like a question I have for you as well. But it's completely unsafe to lower that hammer down, even if it goes to the half cock notch, even if it has a firing pin block. Because here's the problem: in order to drop that hammer, you have to press the trigger. As soon as you press the trigger, you have deactivated the firing pin block, so that gun can fire. It, it doesn't, it can't read your mind going, I don't want it to fire right now. I want it to fire later. Yeah. But more importantly, it still puts you in a position where you have to cock the gun. Now, lately we've heard all these different things in the media about carrying around in the chamber. And most of that's been from uneducated people. Oh, you did say the media. Yeah. But if you look at it, it there's this, you know, for the average unknowing person, a loaded gun's really dangerous. Why would you carry it loaded? Well, because I want it to be dangerous when I need it mm. to be dangerous. And, of course, I carry it with a round in the chamber. Let's talk about how many law enforcement officers there are in this country, and let's talk about how many of them carry on a dry hole or an empty chamber. And I would hope that it would be none. Yeah. Um, but that's a standard practice. When it's a self-defense firearm, you load it. So carrying it cocked and locked is the way the gun was designed to be fired. And... You know, so when we look at that half cock notch, it, it's really unsafe to get it there. It violates a lot of safety rules, and it adds an extra step to it. So the, the, the half cock notch, albeit was a good idea back in the day when we were riding cavalry charges through, you know, the melee of, of, of you know, moors that were upset with us or whatever, that's fine, but it's not the way it is anymore. Now we draw the pistol and hopefully disengage the safety and fire the thing the way we need to. And then, 
hmm. you know, continue on from there. But it, it's it's still there. It's still used. It's it just strongly discourage its use. Okay. Interesting. Well, so taken as a whole, 1911 over some other, uh, you know, you get your striker fired, your traditional double actions. What do you see as the advantages and the disadvantages of the 1911? Well, I, I heard somebody, I can't remember who it was, but he said it's the 1911. It's big, it's heavy, it has low capacity. I'll take two. You know, <laughs> it's the 1911's advantage is, is that it fits most hands, not doesn't fit all hands, but it fits most people's hands very well. It's, it's fairly easy to control if you understand how to hold a pistol. Um, it's, it's reliable if you take care of it properly, but what you can do with it from an accuracy standpoint, from a user end user standpoint, as far as getting shots on target, shots on target quickly, um, it, it really can't be matched. Now, the disadvantages? Modern world, the bad guys don't run around by themselves anymore. And eight rounds just ain't enough most of the time. You know, so, you know, you're looking at an eight-in-one gun, and, you know, if you, you know, we equate trigger press with survival. Um, so if we press that trigger three times on, you know, what does that leave us immediately? We're down to five rounds or four or six rounds. What if I'm dealing with a larger crowd or I'm dealing with a, you know, a whole host of issues? Um, like I didn't necessarily get hits on all three of those first rounds <laughs> I fired. You know, it's, yeah, I, I would tell you that a gunfight is a, especially with pistols is a very dynamic thing in most cases. People are moving around and there's, it's not exactly easy to get hits. Um, you know, we see that all the time watching videos where, you know, bad guy discharges pistol at police, fires six rounds and doesn't even, doesn't even hit the same county the guy, the police were in. Mm-hmm. You know, other times people get lucky shots off, but I don't want to rely on luck and I want to make sure that I have the capacity. So the biggest disadvantage on that 1911 is that capacity. And it's very closely followed by the idea that in order to get a 1911 that works, you have to be almost like an aficionado with it. It's, you, know, you really have to appreciate it. You have to learn how to take care of it. You have to learn to do certain things, you know, certain tuning aspects and stuff like that, that if you just want a gun that you don't want to devote a lot of time to, you know, buy a Glock, buy an M&P, buy a 229. Hell, you know, there's a gun that will just run. You know, those are the types of things that you look at. It gives you capacity. It gives you ease of availability of parts, and it, gives you a gun that you know is going to work every time you press the trigger. Whereas with your 1911, if it starts to have problems, then you got to go, okay, I need to tune the extractor or I need to install a new extractor. If you can't do that yourself, that means you're taking your gun out of business. Most 1911 guys that I know that carry them have at least two, you know, and they have, you know, I've got two identical commanders that I built that one is the backup to the one that I carry. If I carry a 1911. So, they're great guns, accurate. They've got no, there's no doubting the, you know, the power of the 45. You know, it's a powerful cartridge, but, you know, I would argue that if I shot you with a nine millimeter, you would stand there and go, wait, that was a nine. I refuse to bleed. Mm-hmm. You know, let's keep fighting. You know, yeah. yeah. You know, th- th- there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. So caliber arguments are, are less, less important to me than shot placement arguments. And the 40, the 1911 allows you a better opportunity for shot placement in a lot of cases. I think a lot of people can really, they, they shoot them better. You know, that being said, there's an increased level of training. Yeah. So there's goods and bads with everything. You know, there's high and low with everything, but you have to make sure though, that whatever it is you have, that you train with it and that you learn how to use it from somebody who knows how to use it. And the 1911 is one of those. It really is kind of an aficionado's gun. You know, once you learn to take care of it and it becomes part of you, it's like having a good German Shepherd or something. It's, you know, it's always there with you and it's always ready to protect you and you can trust it and rely on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to get to that point. You know, your Shepherd starts out as a puppy who, you know, makes messes in the corner and tears up your shoes. Mm-hmm. So you got to get a, get through that time with your 1911, that training time where you're messing in the corners and tearing up shoes. Yeah. So... You have uh, you kind of touched on something. This is something I heard recently that uh, I was not aware of. Basically, I heard that if you slingshot the slide on a 1911 on an empty chamber, 
you're going to damage the trigger and you know maybe the sear or you know ruin a trigger job or something what uh what can you tell me about that that's actually it's it's true and it's backwards from what the traditional thinking was traditional thinking was you slingshot the slide and ride the hammer forward you never let the hammer fall on an empty chamber that's actually backwards especially now with the modern guns and you don't slingshot the slide forward on an empty chamber because the slide moves at a faster velocity than it does when it's picking up a round off the top of the magazine. So you have to be careful with that. And what happens is the sear in the hammer interface on a very, very small surface. They connect against each other in the cocked position on an extremely small surface. And it's very easy for especially hardened tool steel parts, which can be brittle and they're polished, and they're tuned to a very fine edge for them to be damaged because what happens is is that the slide actually when it slides forward like that it causes them to bounce against each other and it can cause damage to them they're just not intended to be you know having that kind of inertia mm-hmm. or that kind of a, of a slap um and then you know we you, you let it go forward and you know it creates all kinds of issues that you know that you may not notice right up front. You may only get a chip on the edge of the sear, or you may just get a little scratch. And all of a sudden, it'll start to, you spend a lot of money on a trigger job, on a fine tuning and honing, and somebody spent some time there. And all of a sudden, you know, next thing you know, it starts to get a little worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And then somebody like me will take the gun apart and we'll start to look at the under a magnifying glass and we'll be able to see a chip right out of the face of the sear. Hmm. On the on the edge where it interfaces with the hammer, and that's the same thing with people who ride the hammer forward. Let it break cleanly. The sear and the hammer were not designed to bounce against each other, and they were certainly never designed to be ridden against each other slowly. So when you press the trigger and you get that clean break, like that glass rod break that a good 1911 trigger has, and that hammer falls forward. That hammer is being driven forward by a mainspring. When you ride that sear forward, or you ride that hammer forward, you're grinding the sear face and the hammer face against, or the the interlocking surfaces against each other. If I have a 1911 and one of my magazines is getting towards the end of its useful life, uh, isn't isn't there a condition where maybe it doesn't have enough mag spring tension? to lock the slide to the rear. Mm-hmm. So I shoot my 1911 with that, and slide goes forward on an empty chamber, whether I intend or not, I can damage the pistol. Uh, you can, but it, re- it requires repetition. Okay, so it's more it, the, the it's, repetitive It's action. not one time that's going to do it, mm-hmm. but it is repetitive. You know, so, it, it's something that you should be aware of. So my typical, uh, you know, shooting a 229, my typical... Clearing procedure, rack it three times and slap, slap, slap. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's, yeah, well, we, we tend to try to ride the 1911s a little bit mm-hmm. when we're doing that. Yeah, in fact, and I'm famous for, you know, when an instructor calls out on the line, you know, I don't slap that thing three times. I lock it open and phys- do the visual mm-hmm. and physical. Yeah. You know, and if they catch me on it, great, but, you know, I'm just not a big fan of it. Mm-hmm. But I think you'll see mostly, even the competition guys, they'll ride that slide forward. Mm-hmm. They, they won't just let it go and slap it, let it slap forward. Have you ever seen that be a training issue where you've trained yourself to ride the slide? So when you're actually should be, you know, uh, tapping a racket or something. I've seen it a couple of times, but again, that's why, like I said, when I do it, I just lock it to the rear once. Mm-hmm. I don't cycle it a bunch of times unless I'm literally trying to clear something. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, make a special effort to keep uh, the technique separate. From yeah, it. to keep that training scar away. Yeah. And it's because I just don't allow the technique in anywhere. You know, that's... Okay, so to to reiterate, slide... Guide the slide forward. Yeah, ride the slide forward slowly. Let the hammer drop under mainspring tension. Yes, let the hammer just break cleanly and drop. Very nice. I think we've uh, we talked about that. Um, and for those of us playing along at home, I've got a list of questions. I'm not smart enough to remember all this on my own. But uh, different types of extractors. There's uh, internal extractors. There's the external. There's probably some that I'm not aware of. No, and, that's pretty much covers it. And, uh, is it something like, um, 
you know, something like we were talking about with the Series 70, Series 80, meaning John Moses Browning had the the internal extractor, so that's how it should be? Well, you can say it that way. You can do it that way, but it's the internal extractor or the standard extractor. It's internal to the gun, and it's the way the way it interacts with the casing is such that the geometry is correct, and a properly tuned extractor will work perfectly. It'll give you great extraction, and when it's paired with the right ejector, and the, you'll get perfect, almost, you know, you can draw a six-inch circle on the ground and get most of the rounds to bounce into it, mm-hmm. you know, or most of the empty cases. The external extractor took out all of the the voodoo or the art form of tuning an extractor. The internal extractor is spring steel, and it literally has an arc to it. And that arc is set by the user. And you tune the extractor, and there's gauges out there that can help you tune the extractor, and you use a you know trigger-pull gauge and all these other things, but it's really more of an art form. And it's learning how much you can bend that extractor to create that arc to give you the proper tension that will, number one, hold the case long enough to get it to the ejector without Mm -hmm. dropping it into the mag well. So in other words, if the magazine weren't in the gun, Mm -hmm. can this extractor hold that empty case long enough to get it to the ejector, but not be so tight that it has a difficult time with the rounds feeding up behind it during the loading process. And that's the art. And a good 1911 guy he gets who's used to doing it, he can pretty much feel his way through it. He tunes it. Everybody's got their own way of doing it. Um, there's some tools out there that allow you to bend the extractor to a certain point. Um, but again, there's more to an extractor than just setting the tension. The, inter- the external extractor took that away. They use a spring... And the extractor itself actually pivots on a pin that runs through the slide, very much like what you see on a lot of modern guns. Um, you know, the SIG uses an external extractor that matches pretty close to the E2 slide external extractor. And it's just a pin, and you can replace that, that spring behind it to replace the tension. So you're not no longer bending a spring. There's no more subjectivity to tuning the extractor. Um, it takes some of the mystique out of the gun, I think. Um, it's certainly not what Browning had designed. And to be honest with you, I have only seen one external extractor that worked reasonably well and has held up over time. Um, everybody else's has problems. They have issues. Uh, a lot of them can't pass what we just a simple external extractor test. Um, and the easiest way to see that is to, you know, to go to 10A Performance or to modernserviceweapons.com and read their blog about it. But it's really, you know, there's a test about it that was developed by 1911 guys, Wilson Combat, etc. And it's about testing to make sure that the extractor works, but it's also about testing to make sure that the extractor is tuned correctly. If it's tuned correctly, you know you can rely on it for about three to three thousand rounds before you need to start paying attention to it. And most really high inexperience, most really experienced 1911 guys will have two or three already tuned extractors ready to go. It's just something they're used to doing. Uh, it's a maintenance issue on the gun. It's part of gun ownership. The external extractor took all of that away. So now all I have to do is knock out a pin. And literally just change parts and put the pins back, you know, put the pin back in. So any end user who can change their oil can do this extractor now. You know, there's nothing to learn and there's no voodoo magic to it. Now, again, being a 1911 purist, <laughs> um, I, I can't stand external extractors. <laughs> but yeah, if it, if it's on a gun and it works, I have no beef with it. But don't come to me with it and say... My XYZ gun with an external extractor works perfectly. Yeah. Because I would challenge you that it doesn't. Because the first thing I'm going to do is tell you to shoot it without the magazine. And as soon as I do, you know, and you start dropping cases down into, you know, down through the mag well, we're going to talk. And it's, you know, because if it wasn't dropping it through the mag well, if the magazine was in it, that would have been a stovepipe. Because what it is is that the the extractor let go. 
So external extractors aren't bad. They're just not shaped correctly. And they're not in the right place on the gun. They're not on the slide properly. So if you could change the geometry, shape them better, I think that they would, they have a place. And I eventually think that, you know, you're going to see that come around. Right now it's still in development. They're getting better and they're getting better. But Kimber didn't experiment with the external extractors for a while and now they're running internals again. So mm -hmm. that kind of gives you an indication of, you know, they were, they're more about selling the guns than they are about experimenting with what's going to work in the future or not. Um, but, you know, conversely, Smith & Wesson E-Series. Smith & Wesson, when they produced the E-Series, built 1911s with some modifications to it, one of them being some of the geometry inside with the trigger bow and stuff. But also, they modified their own version of an external extractor, which worked okay. But the E-Series extractor, compared to the old extractor on Smith & Wesson, is almost twice as thick. And they did some consulting with some experts in the industry when they put, decided to produce that. And they've come out with a gun that really works with an external extractor. And so it can be done. Um, it still isn't as reliable, I think, as an internal extractor. Uh, and what I, when I say that, it's because I'm looking at ejection patterns. I'm looking at extraction without magazines in them. I'm looking at, you know, I start to look at really closely is when I fire a series of eight rounds in rapid succession and I'm laying out a fan pattern from of ejection from five o'clock all the way out to one o'clock, that tells me that I've got something wrong with that gun. Most people go, it's just fine, it's ejecting. And you're right. And that's why your gun works for your 24, your 25 rounds. Because it, it is working. But I'm looking at it long term. Over the life of this gun, how well is that going to hold up? And I, and I don't believe that they're there yet with the external extractors. I think they'll get there someday. But I'll believe in the external extractor when I see Ed Brown, Bill Wilson, or Les Bear endorse them. You know, you know, if, if I see, you know, okay, even better, you know, if I see Larry Vickers or Hilton Yam step up and say, you know, external extractors are, are the stuff, I think I'll buy into that. Because there's a lot of guys out there who are a heck of a lot smarter than me about them. You know, and I watch them. And if they're not endorsing them, then, you know, I, I don't have to go do their homework all over again just to know that I'm going to get the same end result. Now, you, you mentioned tuning your extractors and stuff. Uh, are you tuning towards a specific load or is it just once you tune it it's gonna basically it's gonna be uh, similar performance you, so do you mean do I need to tune differently for a 230 grain versus a 200 yeah, grain exactly or no, gold no, not, dot versus uh, no know. not really what what I really need to worry about there is is it you know are all the cases the right dimensions mm -hmm. and as long as all the cases are the right dimensions I'm tuning the extractor when we tune extractors we, we tune them for tension we also do some blending on the bottom edge so that the bottom edge isn't quite so sharp. And a lot of the modern guns in SIGs, actually great to SIGs credit on this. You got to give them the guys, you know, Isaac and the guys that are developing there at SIGs some credit. They've started tuning those external extractors. And what it is, is they're blending the bottoms of the extractor and taking away that square point. And what that does is by blending it down there, giving it, you know, giving it a nice shape, they're allowing for that round to come up behind the extractor more smoothly and more efficiently. You know, and it was something I was really surprised when I saw that. It was actually, it's a great improvement. So this is what I'm talking about when I say they're developing the externals. Mm -hmm. They're taking internal principles, like we've been tuning and blending internal extractors for years. And I think you might start to see that start to, you know, as soon as they start experimenting a little bit more with the springs and possibly giving the more tension based on design, you might see that these extractors, you know, the externals will work. But, you know, tuning the extractor, it, it's tuning it for tension, but it's also blending the extractor to make sure that it, that the round, the casing feeds up behind it properly, but that there's still enough lip there to hold it. Extractor, one of the biggest failures for extractors is just plain dirt. You know, most of the time people just don't keep them clean enough behind them. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's the, the old joke is, is every time a gun gets sent in, you know, you see a 1911 come back and they, you know, they get the, the workup sheet on what happened, you know, for line number one, cleaned and tuned extractor. 
Yeah, I think that's already pre-printed on those. Yeah, that's um, going to happen anyway. You know, but it's it, and it's you know from a gunsmith standpoint or a 1911 smith standpoint, it, it's such a common area for failure. That's the first thing you look at. So I, I think that we could see a good future for them, but um, probably not for another couple of years. You know, the good news is, like I said, just looking at the SIG, the evolution on the SIG external, Isaac's done a great job by taking the time to, to really work with how that extractor is shaped. Scott, we're uh, kind of deep into uh, into this topic, but uh, I think we're, you know, we want to roll on with a bunch of other questions and talk about it a little more. Do you mind coming on next week? No, it'd be great. I'd, I'd love talking about this stuff. So. All right, so we'll uh, pick this up next week. And until then, we'll talk to you later. Excellent. And we're back. That's uh, part one of my interview with Scott Ballard because I ended up kind of cutting him off in the middle there. Uh, he didn't get to tell you about some of the things he's got coming up. Scott's still uh, a blogger. You can find some of his writing at modernserviceweapons.com. And he's got a number of courses coming up on the SIG schedule. He's got an advanced tactical shotgun coming up August 27th. Uh, he's going to talk a little bit more about it in the next episode, but he's also got some protective shooting principles of personal survival as uh, just a couple of the courses. So if uh, you're interested in getting some training with Scott, you can look up those uh, courses at sixhouracademy.com. I wish that was free on the 27th to go take that shotgun course. I could afford shotgun shells, and they're available. Perfect time right now to learn some shotgun, folks. There you go. What you just listened to and everything is brought to you by Aries Gear. Find them at ariesgear.com. They got more than just belts. They got all kinds of good stuff. Go on there and browse around and uh, see what you want because uh, you'll definitely find things that you would like to have over there. Anything from a knife to hardware for your ARs, belts, uh, the shotgun shell carriers that we haven't gotten yet. Hopefully it'll happen one day, and we'll be talking about those when we get to get them. Yeah, I finally, uh, finally got that battle belt kind of put together, so very happy with the Ares gear foundation it's built on. It seemed to work well for you. Uh, you know, it also ran well out there, that Sunday course, or the course last Sunday, your G-Code gear. Yeah, it was good to finally get uh, get my hands on some G-Code gear. I got the holster and the uh, drop leg attachment and the attachment to put it all on the battle belt. Uh, thanks to George over at uh, G-Code for hooking us up. Appreciate it. And I'll get to spend a little bit more time with it shortly, and you'll be hearing more about that in the future. Now, Daniel, you also got some G-Code stuff as well, right? I did, but your G-Code stuff is cooler than mine. And your G-Code stuff almost didn't make it up there to Rhode Island. Yeah. It almost said, oh, sorry, John, I, f I forgot your G-Code stuff. Yeah, I could tell when you show you were showing me the stuff and you let me pick which I wanted. Uh, I could tell that you really wanted the stuff that I picked, but, <laughs> but I picked <laughs> it anyway. Well, your holster was for a 229, yes. and I had I had already put my 226 in, and it wasn't mm -hmm. a snug fit. It was, it was, it fit everywhere. It just kind of had a little bit of a up and down movement, mm -hmm. I guess you could say, vertical movement. But I, yeah. I did pick the drop leg attachment that matched color wise with my uh, with my battle belt, so I didn't want to commit any fashion faux pas by having unmatched gear. And it's not the color that matters, but your your uh, drop leg, and it's not very much of a drop leg, which is why I like that. I don't like the crazy way down on the leg. Those it's like it's barely even a drop, but it's still enough to make it where if you've got a heavy holster with an all metal gun with a light on it, it's not going to bounce around all over the place. Like if you were just hanging it from your belt yeah. in uh, some kind of little low ride fashion my drop leg is has a paddle attachment but the cool thing about it this is g-code gear i can do get pick up a small little rti attachment which i actually already have one i just have to buy the adapter for that belt screw it in and then my belt will be just like yours and it can attach i can go rti right on the the belt or i can go holster uh, in that drop leg thing so that's cool stuff about the g-code man you can run it whatever you want and then if it turns out i don't like that I could throw it right back on my plate carrier because I have RTI will on my plate carrier as well. Yeah, we could uh, we could probably talk about the G code stuff for a while, but we yeah. won't uh, we won't get that deep into it today. Nope. Uh, also, Dark Angel Medical. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about how you need some medical training. Um, it's much more likely for you to get an event that is a medical type event than it would be actually a use of force. Uh, we see things happen like that very often. Someone just goes out and eats dinner, kids choking. Cut yourself, cut someone else gets cut, you know, Fall breaking off glass. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Car they don't accidents. really have training for zombie bites or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you may come up on a overturned vehicle with a family inside and have to pull them out like uh, George Zimmerman just did. Yeah. Never know. All right. So uh, go check out Dark Angel at darkangelmedical.com.
and go get one of his Dark Angel medical kits too once you've got the training. Yep. Uh, actually, they will come with the training. Oh, that's true. Yep. Take the class, you get the kit. So, good stuff. That's it. All right. So, uh, I guess we should just wrap this up. We uh, This episode's probably going to be about an hour 15, hour 20 minutes long, so we probably ought to wrap it up. Thanks to the other podcasts out there that uh, that we enjoy. I seem to get a lot of uh, cross-pollination, a lot of support from, from Paul over at Safety Solutions Academy and uh, for over at the Gun Dudes. So, appreciate their support. Uh, I'm sure you're probably listening to them already, but... Uh, if you're not, go ahead and give them a listen. Uh, the Ungrateful Trucker as well on the Road Gunner Pro- Podcast. You want to give him a listen? Yep. Safety Solutions Academy with Paul Carlson and Politics and Guns Podcast with Paul Lathrop. Those are uh, another couple of good ones. That's right. we got to mention all the ones you've been on lately, which is a long list, isn't it? Oh, come on. Oh, lastly, just launched the Paratus Academy Facebook page. So Paratus Academy, P A. R-A-T-U-S Academy Facebook. Go check it out and like that page and bring all your friends over so there's like 50,000 likes. All right. That's pretty much all I got. Yep. Gunfighter Cast uh, Facebook page as well. Join the NRA. Take somebody shooting. That's it. You said it. That's right. All right. Until the part two of the 1911 talk, Gunfighter Cast out. They're not going to be safe if you don't tell them to be safe, John. No. Stay in. People are already out. They can't be safe now. They're gonna have to. They're gonna have to wait for part two. Okay. For the exciting conclusion of the 1911 interview, and we'll throw a be safe. Again. All right. Go, goodbye. This is a Paratus Academy production. Copyright Paratus Academy 2013.